Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast, powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. My first guest today is Richard Walker, the managing director of Iceland Foods, a British retailer with over 900 stores. My second guest is Cal Major, the founder of Paddle Against Plastic. We'll talk about what it means to be an activist business. We'll hear how one person's solo adventures have captured imaginations and changed behaviours. And we'll talk about plastic, why it's a problem and what to do about it. There's also a chance to hear me completely out of my depth as two surfers reunite. Let's get to the conversation. Richard, Cal, welcome. Thank Hello. you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. I think you have crossed paths before because you are both to be found a lot of your time outdoors. Richard, am I right? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so a uh, big, big climber, but also surfer. And I think we were at an ocean event in Cardiff last year. Yes, and we bumped into each other in the lakes as well at a Kendall Mountain Festival. So we did, indeed. Hang Climb on, an ocean event just for us city dwellers. <laughs> what the dickens? This is what happens when you're an ocean lover. All your events revolve around the ocean. What's this, like Glastonbury on yeah. Sea, is it? Oh, no, but ocean we should mountains. get that sorted. We have an Iceland-sponsored Glastonbury on Sea. There you go, there you go. Well, look, it's part, it is part reunion in that case. Uh, but, Richard, I'm going to um, turn to you first. You're, you're, you're the managing director of Iceland. It is the fastest growing retailer in the UK, 25,000 colleagues, 900 plus stores. I want to hear uh, about the story and the journey uh, firsthand. But as is customary on the lens, uh, I need to know your first ever job. Okay, so uh, my first job was actually the best job I've ever had, which was working in a local bar in Chester. Awesome. Now, crikey, well, why did you move in that case? I know, <laughs> exactly. I had a, a bright future ahead. What did I do? Uh, moved on to sell frozen peas for a living. But uh, no, it was, it was good fun. And I was uh, saving up money to travel around the world. Formative years. It is worth taking a step back, isn't it? Because Iceland, of course, a family business founded in 1970 by your father, Sir Malcolm. Um, many people would have thought um, the, that was the only, the, the only path, but you chose a more entrepreneurial one. Yeah, I, so when I graduated from uni, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was absolutely adamant that the last thing I wanted to do was um, uh, try and emulate dad. And uh, it was very important for me to, to do my own thing. So I, I moved to London and qualified as a chartered surveyor and uh, worked in London for a couple of years and then moved to Poland, uh, which was quite liberating, really, because no one had heard of Iceland or knew who dad was. And um, I, I uh, actually had a joint venture with Lehman Brothers, of all people, um, and we built up a, a, a proper company out there um, and we managed to build that up and sell it and then uh, we moved back to London and did the same and and that company Bywater Properties I'm, I'm very proud of and it, it, it's uh, still going I'm still chairman but I'm I'm not day to day involved anymore and once I'd gotten into my 30s I kind of felt that I had enough um, road mileage and experience and maturity to finally give frozen peas a go. And you, and you could be forgiven for thinking that at that point you get a sort of um, you know a secret pass into the boardroom. I don't think that was your first step <laughs> back into the firm. No, I, I remember sitting down with Dad and I suggested to him, look, I, I think I should, you know, give Eisen to go. And it was, ne funnily enough, we always talked about the business, but it was never discussed in terms of me going into it as I was growing up. And um, he was quite surprised to hear it. And he said, just 
don't bother. Just co- collect rents. It is, you know, a far better life. Um, now, I don't know if that was reverse psychology. Yes, but, I was going to say, yeah. was he teasing you there? Well, maybe, maybe. Um, you know, hopefully he's proud now. But um, we did agree the, the only way to do it was to spend a, a full time, a proper year working in stores, uh, stacking the shelves, on the checkout, driving the vans to really learn about the nuts and bolts of the business. And it was it was an essential experience, but also very humbling as well. Within your current role, um, Richard, it is absolutely fair to say you've taken a stand on certain things. And in particular, um, you've used your voice. You have written, spoken, acted on a whole host of things. And just picking out a selection from the last 12 months or so, um, bold ideas on mandatory food waste collections, a level playing field on retail taxes, a deposit return scheme, and crucially helping palm oil stop deforestation. Can we just alight on that final one there? Palm oil. Mm. Why did you choose that as a problem worth solving? Yeah. And how did you go about it? I'm a a long-term member of uh, Greenpeace and... um you know, as, as Cal and I said, we, we both share a passion for the outdoors. And I've always been aware of tropical rainforest destruction, but never quite sure of um, how palm oil plays a part. So I flew out to uh, West Kalimantan, which is really the front line of the palm oil industry in Borneo, and had a look firsthand for myself just exactly what the mass market um, widespread use of palm oil is doing to the rainforests, which have been chopped down or burnt at a rate of 146 football pitches every single hour in Indonesia alone and also its effect on local communities who've been displaced and of course uh, critically endangered animals such as the orangutan who are now um, close to extinction and I knew as a retailer we were part of the problem because palm oil is ubiquitous it's in 50% of all products and you know the the world has got way too reliant on it so in typical Iceland fashion we're only 2% of the grocery market despite being a large business but we wanted to use our, our stores our staff and our profile as a platform to uh, raise the debate and drive discussion on the issue. So we we obviously came out of palm oil uh, under the very uh, strong premise that we're not anti-palm oil, but we're anti-deforestation. And we wanted to encourage and nudge and move the industry towards uh, new pledges on zero deforestation. Yeah, and in terms of those pledges, what did you yourselves commit to? Just remind us. Yeah, so it was by the end of last year, 2018, to uh, fully eliminate palm oil from all of our own label products. And this had never been done before. So when I sat down with the team a year or two previously, you know, with the idea, they said, well, it's impossible. You know, the the world is constructed around palm oil. It's in 50% of of all our products. And we had to have uh, thousands of hours of chef time, uh, two supplier conferences, really relearn um, the cooking process at, at scale to work out how to use other vegetable fats uh, to replace it but we we managed to get there and and more importantly than the act of doing that we managed to raise the debate and the discussion and obviously the best thing that ever happened was our Christmas ad uh, was was banned uh, which was um, featuring Rang Tang and and then it became a viral sensation right and this was an ad previously used by Greenpeace mm extraordinarily became essentially the most watched Christmas ad of all time you have admitted um elsewhere that it did nothing for sales I suspect Mm. that wasn't why you did it no, it wasn't. I mean, I, I obviously hoped it would have done something, but I suppose looking at it properly, it never would have done because it was a, a campaign that was around raising public awareness and, um, you know, the, highlighting the issue, which it certainly did. Uh, Google searches of the words palm oil increased 10,000% after our campaign. So we certainly raised people's awareness, but it wasn't a traditional marketing advert with products at a price. Yeah, I see. And you've mentioned the 2% that you have mm. of the market. I guess part of the bigger picture clearly is influencing 
influencing others, what is your style when it comes to that? Because sometimes these things can be badged under inspirational, uplifting. Uh, and I just wonder if that's punchy enough. How do you influence your peers? Yeah, well, being 2% in the market, we have to act differently and we have to think differently. And we, we actually have a, a long history as a business of doing this and creating a bit of havoc and um, causing a bit of disruption because that's how we change the industry. And in the early noughties, my dad was very concerned about the adoption of genetically modified ingredients. And he became the first retailer anywhere in the world to take them out of our own label products. And a bit like palm oil, a bit like our pledges to remove plastic, uh, the industry kind of laughed at him and said, it's technically impossible and uh, it's unnecessary but actually it was one that everyone else had followed within a matter of months so it was a great piece of corporate activism but shows that you know if, if we do things differently and and create enough havoc we really can start to change the industry okay and what about the sort of harder edge of that in terms of poking shoving cajoling your peers in very other you know very large companies mm. uh, saying come on everybody we have to do things differently is that your style how do you do that depends on what it is so palm oil is is a very nuanced debate there's uh, many different sides to it and um, it's really down to every retailer to make their own ethical decision but with regards to plastics you know we, we have a crisis on our hands and we wanted to uh, encourage and and you know uh, shame almost other retailers to follow our lead and to do more well, let's talk a bit more about plastics. Thank you, Richard. I've got lots more questions for you. But we mentioned pa uh, plastics. Cal, it's lovely to meet you today. Hello. Thank you for having me here. They will, a very warm welcome. Paddle against plastic. Yes. Um, Cal, I already know from meeting you, you're a very upbeat, positive person. So unusually, I'm going to start with the bad news, if that's all right. Uh-oh. Uh, talk to me about plastics. You are inspiring positive environmental change, but... Um, we have a problem. We do have a problem. Um, all of my campaigns actually focus on the positive solutions that we can be a part of. I think it's really important that we don't just drive the negativity down people's throats um, because that kind of negativity and doom and gloom, is it really turns people off, off these environmental campaigns. However, since you've asked, um, plastic pollution is a massive issue. We all know this now. We've seen all sorts of um, stats in the media and in the news. David Attenborough's done amazing things to highlight the issue. I think the biggest Stat, the one stat that I want to focus on here, which is the one that uh, sort of stands out to me the most as a vet, is that 100,000 marine mammals and over a million seabirds die every year as a result of plastic pollution. And that's an estimate, and it's being found more and more that even if animals aren't dying from plastic pollution, they're not thriving because they're consuming plastic, such as turtles, which are found to all contain plastic in their stomachs. So it's a massive issue. It's not just a problem that's um, over in you know warm climates and tropical ecosystems. It's also an enormous problem here that I've seen firsthand. Well, as well. I notice here in the UK we get through 13 million bottles a year. 38 and a half. Is it 38? Hang on, 13, no, 13 billion plastic bottles a year. No, I can't believe it. 13 billion. It's 38 and a half million bottles a day in the UK. In the UK. That is extraordinary. It's enormous. And that's another one of the main facts that drove my campaign to start with. Do you know, that has completely shamed me there. Not, not because I got the number wrong, but just mm. as I stopped to think about how many plastic bottles I use every month. Yeah. If you think about it. And actually, the thing I learned from you, Cal, was that a single plastic bottle 
takes how many years? Well, we don't to know because plastic's been around for less than 100 years, so we don't truly know the full effects of it. But it's estimated that a plastic bottle will take about 450 to 500 years to break down in the environment. And that's not breaking down into, you know, nice organic material. Um, that's breaking down, releasing chemicals, carcinogens, and causing damage along the way as it fragments into smaller pieces which are more easily ingestible by animals. Right. So while just Briefly, um, on this huge problem mm-hmm. worth solving, you've talked about the impact on marine life, on seabirds. Also, fundamentally, I suspect, for the health of the planet, yeah. uh, you know, this has a big knock-on effect. Just, just, just tell us what it is. Yeah, massively. Unfortunately, plastic pollution is something we can all see, so we're starting to really be able to understand how big an effect it's having. Um, but take the oceans, for example. The reason a lot of plastic ends up in the oceans is it starts in land. It doesn't always start in the ocean. It starts in land and it finds its way through the streets, into canals, into rivers, out to the sea, where it's basically lost at sea. A lot of it will sink, um, a lot of it floats. And the problem with it being in the ocean is it really harms those ecosystems. So the ocean ecosystems produce over half the oxygen we breathe on our planet. So whether or not we surf, whether or not we feel connected to the oceans, each and every one of us is fundamentally and biologically connected to the oceans by the oxygen we breathe. So destroying them at the hands of plastic pollution is a really strange concept for me to be able to grasp that something so simple, some you know, single-use item, is effectively limiting our ability to breathe. And it's not just the animals in the ocean it affects too. You know, these carcinogens and chemicals that are released by plastic as it breaks down, they harm our own health. And we don't know quite to the extent of what these chemicals are doing, but we do know that they're endocrine disruptors, which is obviously particularly important for women, endocrine being hormones, hormone disruptors. And, you know, we haven't quite got to grasps with how important those carcinogenic effects of plastic are as well. Yeah, and I, and I guess the point you make as you start talking about this is that some of these numbers, some of these challenges can seem so overwhelming yeah. and like anyone might think, well, how can one person uh, make a difference? And clearly in terms of how they live and how they buy, they can, but mm. also by drawing attention to these issues. And that's what you've done. So tell us how you went about it. Yeah, so um, like I said, I really wanted to stay away from negativity. I wanted people to feel like they could be part of this issue, part of the solution to it through really simple, not life-changing switches. So I was living in Devon. I'd just moved down to Devon and I was spending every spare minute on my paddleboard or surfing in the oceans um, and on my paddleboard exploring the beaches in Devon and Cornwall. Mm. And every time I came in from a surf or every time I came in from paddleboarding, I'd find all this plastic on the beaches. And at that point in time, that was several years ago now, there wasn't much in the media talking about this and people weren't really highlighting it. And I was horrified that we weren't talking about this. And one of the most common items I was finding was plastic bottles. And then when I heard this fact about the, you know, as using 38 and a half million a day in the UK, I thought, well, surely this is one of the simplest things that we can do something about. And the way we do something about it is first and foremost, we all use a refillable water bottle. So that's water bottles out the question. And then we can start making decisions as to whether we want to continue to use plastic bottles for other things. So I kind of, without really thinking too much about it, I decided to combine my love of paddleboarding and the ocean with trying to deliver a positive message. And so my first expedition with Paddle Against Plastic was to stand up paddleboard around the whole Cornish coast, yes. asking people to refill 
their water bottles and showing people all the plastic bottles I was finding. You know, I'd come across a tiny little beach in Cornwall, little coves where there were over 100 bottles just sort of hiding in the back of coves. Yeah, and just in case anyone's imagining people with ice creams cheering you on on a sunny day. This is pretty brutal. This is 260 miles yeah. of some pretty unforgiving coastline. Well, I was expecting people cheering me on with ice creams on a sunny day. I was expecting flat waters. <laughs> I was expecting dolphins. I was going to get a tan. I was going to have a six-pack. It was going to be the best trip ever. And the reality was, for three weeks, I was hit with unseasonably um, terrible weather, including fog, head-high waves, gale-force winds, ridiculous tidal races, and I got chased by seals round Land's End. So it was a very, very steep <laughs> learning curve. Sounds very Cornish. <laughs> it was very Cornish. It was a very steep learning curve for somebody who hadn't really done much paddleboarding before. Well, it sounds like it made a, 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 you know, a, a strong personal impact, but yeah. crucially... Did it work? What difference did it make? Yeah, it did make a strong personal impact. And for me, it was being able to do something, do something more than just sit and talk and bang on to people about plastic. I met loads of people as I was going around. Um, I met loads of people who I talked to, individuals. I still have a family who messages me now who I sort of accidentally stayed with one night in Cornwall. They took me in, basically. I'd washed up on a beach and they took me in and looked after me. And that very evening they were on the Surfers Against Sewage website buying themselves and all their children reusable water bottles. And I always said that it didn't matter if it was just 10 people that I spoke to, if it was 10 people who changed their ways and perhaps inspired other people, then my job was done. And I also had um, a couple of episodes which had a little bit more traction, such as paddling into Boardmasters Festival with a massive great big bivvy bag full of plastic bottles that I'd collected off one of the beaches nearby, but not realising that I was actually accidentally paddling through an international surf competition, which is very much frowned upon on an enormous stand-up paddleboard. Yes, and I have the Benny Hill theme coming into my head as we speak in the accidental comedy of it. I am very interested, Richard, by the idea that an individual through their actions can inspire much larger organisations and you are a driving force behind another campaign, Backyard Nature, which, as I see it, was actually inspired by kids. Yeah, absolutely. So after our campaigns on palm oil and, and plastics, we had, you know, we had letters from over a thousand schools and huge amount of engagement and interest. Um, and one school in particular uh, from Liverpool contacted me and they'd set up a sustainability group in the school uh, called the Eco Emeralds. Mm. And they um, they wanted to have a, a high level business me- meeting with me. So I invited them in and um, asked them to share their ideas. And these um, are sort of eight and nine year olds. Eight and nine year old kids from actually a, ve- a very kind of working class um, area of uh, Anfield in, in Liverpool and and they were just fantastic and also so inspiring and their enthusiasm was infectious and they had a ton of different ideas in terms of how to engage other kids uh, in nature whether you've got a big back garden a small patio garden or indeed you live on the 20th floor of a block of flats So like what? What did they come up with? Uh, so bees was the big suggestion um, you know everyone who, who doesn't love uh, big bumblebees and obviously we have a, a pollinator uh, decline issue um, which is also essential for food production. You know, a third of all of our food is is directly uh, related to the pollination uh, that comes from bees. So um, they they had uh, loads of different ideas, which included throwing bee bombs, which are these seed balls that you can throw anywhere in the local park or uh, in your backyard, whatever. And, um, you know, if we could distribute those in our stores, then we could potentially throw millions of wildflower seeds all around the country, which is what we're aiming to do. Wow, so what an image. So question, how does... 
other than giving them your huge encouragement and energy and support, how does a company like Iceland play in that mix? What do you help bring uh, to this B-bomb party? Yeah, well, um, you know, the problem with environmentalism is it it can be a a very middle-class discussion. Mm. And, um, you know, Iceland is for everyone. Um, And we have, as you said, almost a 1,000 stores up and down the country. But actually, we also represent some some of the most deprived communities in the UK as well. And, you know, I I sort of passionately believe that we need to uh, democratise environmental and you know just because you might only have 25 pound a week to spend on food it doesn't mean you don't care about the environment about and about some of these issues and therefore if we serve you know there's four and a half million kids in poverty in the UK today and we serve all of their families every week um, and and therefore we have the ability to use the business as a platform to engage them and their families to become better environmental guardians of whatever space they've got. Right. Now, Cal, question. Iceland will have over £3 billion in sales this year. When you see very large companies getting involved in this environmental discussion, debate, taking action, on a scale of sceptical to over the moon, where do you sit on this? Because it's not everybody's mm. cup of tea. Yeah. But give us your very frank take on it. My honest opinion is it's changed massively in the last couple of years. And historically, I think there's been a lot of shaming of business for doing environmentally the right thing. And people have suggested it's a PR stunt. And I've met now a few businesses who are doing the right thing because that's what matters to them. And Richard is one of these people, and I commend you enormously on your work. I have absolutely no doubt that that's coming from the heart. You know, anyone who surfs and loves the ocean is is a pretty decent person in my opinion. Um, But also there are businesses now up and down the country who are doing things for the right reasons. I've done a a lot of work with the the Mid-Counties Cooperative, so I'm an environmental ambassador for the Mid-Counties Cooperative and we have a campaign which helps tackle plastic pollution because it's important to the members, similarly to how this is important to to your members and to your your colleagues, Richard. It's, I, I think you've do have to be careful around using environmentalism to promote your business Mm. but there is the other way of looking at it which is using your business to protect the environment and I personally think that it's such an important way to tackle all these environmental crises that we face. I mean how does the world go around? It goes around because of the economy and because of business and actually it needs to be the businesses that are taking hold of these environmental campaigns and doing what they can with passion to tackle them. So in all honesty I commend businesses who are doing the I think. And Richard. Thank um, you. <laughs> well, Richard, let, let's, let's put a punchier message out there to our peers, our mm. colleagues. Who do we need to see around the table? Yeah, well, you know, we, we need to see all business, large and small. You know, the, the reality is the main, we have, we have a, a climate emergency, so parliamentarians told us, and yet, you know, change is not happening anywhere near enough, nearly near quickly enough. And that change really is going to be driven by business. When you think about it, they control the supply chains and, and also they control a lot of uh, consumer behaviour through uh, through their, their course of business. And therefore, we do need all businesses to, to step up and do whatever they can where they can, look at their supply chains, look at their best practice um, and do, do way more. And, you know, plastic in my sector is a, is a really kind of obvious one where we need to move away from uh, the recycling of, of um that recycling is the only thing that matters. Recycling is very important, but of course we need to turn down the tap of production as well. And that's what I'd like to see more of from the Tesco's, you know, the Aldi's, the Asda's, etc. Yeah, and I guess this is a big challenge, isn't it? Because as much as you do to change your own business, the simple fact is many of the problems, if I can put it so bluntly, happen in consumer behaviour. So do you have 
a role to play in changing consumer behaviour and how do you handle that? It's quite tricky. It is tricky and sometimes it, it doesn't work. You know, we had a, a loose produce trial and I deliberately didn't use a posh area. I, I, ch- I chose, a, you know, a very working class uh, store. So this is non-packaged, non-packaged, pick it up yourself. Pick it up yourself, loose um, fruit and veg. Our sales dropped 20%. It didn't work. And, you know, that's not sustainable for the business. And as you said, 25,000 staff that depend on the business doing well, 25,000 mortgages, we can't continue with that. So we need another solution. So a lot of what we do is trial and error, and it's not a, a linear line to success. Well, isn't that because, and I'm no expert, so I'm being deliberately provocative, the 20% was because people simply weren't used to it. Perhaps you needed to give it a little bit longer. You must have thought yeah. about all these things, but yeah. how do you know when to invest and when to pull back and say it's not working? That's right, and some of it's chicken and egg, and I think we do have a duty to drive consumer behaviour for the benefit, and we do have a role to play, for sure. You know, we can merchandise things in a particular way, we can promote products, in a particular way and of course we are part of that mix but I'm, I'm certainly not one for pointing the finger at one particular institution I think you know the three big institutions government business and individuals they all have a role to play in the climate emergency yeah well on that I want to ask both of you what you do if you've got your hands on the keys to number 10 in a minute because uh, it is uh, well fr- frankly it's, it's anyone's uh, it's anyone's at the moment um Cal, I don't feel I've done justice to your ongoing adventures because you didn't stop on the Cornish coast. So just very quickly on a whistle-stop theme, uh, just tell us what happened next and particularly where you're next going because we will follow this. This is uh, this is Paddle Against Plastic, but give us the whistle-stop recap. Whistle-stop tour. So 2016, Cornish coast. Two- <laughs> Sorry, I can't keep this up. 2017, I decided to take the campaign north to Scotland. So yeah. I, I stand-up paddleboarded around the Isle of Skye in Scotland, completely solo, no phone signal, no VHF signal, just me and my paddleboard and a load of cows. Um, and a and load of cows? A load of cows. Not on the board? <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, no, I met on several beaches. Um, so that was, yes, that was 2017. That was one of the most um, life-changing expeditions I think I've, in fact, I think it is the most life-changing expedition I've ever done. Why? How did it change your life? Um... I was alone. Okay, so in Cornwall, I had people. I had people I'd meet on the beaches. I had a friend who was paddling with me. I was guy. I was completely alone, and I got into some real trouble. The first day, I nearly got blown out to sea. Um, I was suffering from severe exhaustion every day. I was camping. I had to learn to wild camp on my own. I was basically foraging for water. And the last three or four days, I was so exhausted that just to get from A to B every day took everything I had. And those last three or four days, I remember saying to myself that when I was battling winds to try and not get blown out to sea, it's all right, Kyle, once you finish this expedition, you never have to see a paddleboard again. That's it. You can just forget all about this nonsense. And now looking back on it, once I finished and I realised what I had managed to do, it was a really profound sense of how much more we are capable of than we give ourselves credit for. And all of those things that happened to me, if you'd have told me before I started any of them, I wouldn't have got on my board. I would have said, I can't do it, I need help, I wouldn't be able to do it without anyone to bounce ideas off, I'm not strong enough, and I did it, and I got myself to safety every time through sheer mental determination and physical stubbornness. Um, And it was a real learning curve. And it was also two weeks out in nature with nothing but nature to really draw me back to what was important and to start to acknowledge how important that time out just just with nature was. And I also was very hit by how even this remote island um, where I was seeing nobody, day to day I was seeing nobody, was so affected by plastic pollution. Isn't, Cal, the conflict here that following your passion could mean Mm. you just escape 
all of the yeah. things we've been talking about, business, industry, cities. And, yeah. and yet the way to preserve everything that you love is to turn the opposite direction and engage. So how, how, yeah. how do you decide which one to do? I think there's got to be balance. And I completely agree. I think business has to be used to be, to be done for good. So last year, I continued my expeditions in a very different manner. I stand up paddleboarded from Land's End in Cornwall to John O'Groats in the north of Scotland. And with that, I was focusing on coastal communities, but also um, businesses. And I was trying to highlight all the positive things happening the length of the UK to tackle plastic pollution. And that was really eye-opening to me because it it helped me appreciate the role of businesses and more importantly the role of communities and the communities I found who were connected to their environment connected to nature they were the ones the ones who loved that place they were the ones who were doing something to protect it and the tangible change they'd had in those communities stopping plastic at source picking up litter was amazing and I feel like yes we need businesses to um, to do their bit we need individuals to understand but we need people to reconnect to their local environment and to their communities if we want them to do something and it does remind me there Richard a bit like the backyard nature campaign it is your patch your planet yeah. lots of mental health benefits to being reconnected but also those other well count count the benefits I suppose but it's but it starts on the doorstep absolutely yeah yeah, I mean, engagement with nature is, is has so many different benefits. Right, so, Richard, a question for Cal. It could be about the past, it could be about the future. <clears throat> a question? <laughs> now you caught me on, on the hop here. Um, oh, I know. What's your, which is your favourite surf break? Oh, here we oh. go. Hang on, it's like Desert Island Discs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the first one that's... Hang on. What is a surf? <laughs> Go again down a wormhole here. Oh, That's probably uh, a surfing term there. Off topic, yes. this, isn't it? Apologies. What, what is a surf break? A surf break is basically where a wave breaks and you can surf it so that's oh. normally in the UK that's a beach break okay. but you can have waves breaking over reefs you did so, say any question any question so I would say that it has to be my home break of Westwood Ho because it's such a friendly community no one gives you any grief and even when it's sloppy and slow that's another surfing term sloppy um, it's um, it's a lot of fun sounds cool very good well sloppy and slow two words Richard Walker has never been uh, described as <laughs> Cal what's your question for Richard my question for Richard, um, I think I want to know what you do to stay connected to nature because you must lead such a busy life coming to London and business meetings with the emeralds, the eco-emeralds. Yeah. What do you do to make sure that you protect your mental well-being and your connection to nature, which is and driving Richard, all this? Richard, hold that thought, but just to clarify, the eco-emeralds is the name given to this amazing school up in Anfield. Yeah, exactly. So that's the eight and nine yeah. we're talking about, forgive me. Yeah, who are, who are fronting and leading backyard nature. Totally. Yeah, I think, first of all, to recognise the fact that, you know, there's my business life, there's my family life, but there's also my personal life. And, you know, sometimes those things can get out of kilter because you're focused so much on running the business or, or you know, other things. And you've always got to keep time for yourself. And for me, that's obviously surfing, but also climbing. And it's a real, it's a form of meditation. You know, often if I'm hanging off a, you know, a, a cliff face, I'm not thinking about anything else yeah. at all. And, and your mind is clear and, and, and that's a great thing. I totally get that. No, great question question and, and, and a very fascinating answer actually. Uh, Richard I've got some um, slightly more quick fire ones for you particularly uh, about the business if that's okay. Uh, first question would you say you're an activist uh, the clues are there mm. um, and if so what does that mean to you? 
yeah, we're, we're a corporate activist. We're not a sustainable business. You know, we're a, a high-volume mass-market food retailer that's subject to the same contradictions as everyone else. We're trying to become more so and raise our sustainable platform. Um, but actually, we're a great corporate activist, which to me means taking an issue, GM, palm oil, plastics, whatever, and uh, trying to change the world with it. So I guess one of the decisions there is you can go broad across many subjects or you can go deep yeah. on one. How have you made that choice yeah, I think it, um, given our market size, we're, we're always better at, you know, going for one particular issue. But it has to come from a position of integrity. And it's what Cal was talking about earlier. You know, it's sustainable business is great if you really mean it. Isn't, isn't one of the challenges, Richard, that if you use your voice, if you are punchy in the way you communicate, um, not afraid to sit on question time, <laughs> isn't the risk there that you, that you make some mistakes? Absolutely, yeah. So, so what's one you regret? Um, I think what I've learned, actually, given the the kind of media attention, is that you have to be almost overly transparent on absolutely everything. We we live in an age of social media. Everyone's watching. And there is a lot of ingrained cynicism out there because we've had decades of greenwash by business. So when someone comes along and genuinely means it and wants to do the right thing and you put your head above the parapet, you can be shot at. And therefore, it's very important to share the journey and talk about the failures as well as the successes along the way. Mm, so you mentioned that trial on um, you know, not using the packaging mm. and sales falling by 20%. Yeah. Anything else that, with the benefit of hindsight, you've taken a stand on and you thought actually could have picked a different battle there? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, certainly uh, palm oil was, uh, was quite scary at the time. Um, the Times did an undercover investigation and found out that the Malaysian government were funding a smear campaign against me personally on social media uh, through a, um, a supposed grassroots organisation. Absolutely extraordinary. So in a sense, that's the cavalry coming to support you. I mean, to what extent, without sounding terribly Machiavellian, are there dark forces in that situation working against you? Because not everyone was Hearing. No, not at all. And uh, I knew that I was warned, actually, that the uh, Malaysian and Indonesian government would kick back because obviously palm oil is a very important part of their economy. And, you know, we were questioning some of the bad practices that were going on. So uh, it was it was certainly a, a bit of a worrying time. But, if you know, if you're starting to annoy um, some people who are doing the wrong thing, then it's, it's no bad thing. Well, indeed. As we're talking, I wonder to what extent being a family business gives you certain strengths that you might not have if you had a different shareholder makeup. You yeah, must have I, I think this. so. Yeah, absolutely. And one of our big benefits is that we can think long term because we're a family business and we're privately owned and therefore um, we can do the right thing, which often takes a long time for the good of the business and also for the good of the planet. And we're not a big listed corporate vehicle that has to chase quarterly profit increases every three months. And that does drive a different mentality. So founded in 1970 by your father, Sir Malcolm Walker, if I can ask a very personal question, what do you want your, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, well, it, it's a good question because you, you know, you've got to appreciate when I come into a business like this. Dad is, of course, a legend, you know, and uh, he's created an incredible business. And I think when I get to my deathbed, if I've only grown the business by another one thousand shops, three billion pounds, twenty five thousand staff, I probably won't be that satisfied. And I think for me, it's very important to use the business as a platform uh, for issues that I care about, but also our customers care about. And that's that's one of my big motivating factors. Mm. And in terms of getting to know what your customers care about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which Dad was always so good at. And uh, and I think it all comes back to the customers, the communities that we serve and understanding what makes them tick and what they care about. So why don't we just come briefly to my very quick question about the keys to number 10, Cal. 
uh, government does have a role to play uh, in in changing the world. Mm-hmm. First thing you do as PM. Oh my gosh! First thing I do as PM. Um, I think I would introduce some kind of um, something into the curriculum for children to increase the importance of time outside for them. So at the moment, you know, education is very much maths, English, science. I think we should be focusing on um, mental health and on how time outside can improve that. And also teaching kids why it's important to protect our environment through helping them to fall in love with it. Love it. Completely agree. Mm. Fantastic. Richard? Um, I would end oil and gas subsidies. We have an extraordinary situation where we know exactly who the culprits are in terms of climate change, and yet globally the oil and gas industry um, enjoys $5.5 trillion annually, which is extraordinary. You know, that creates a false economy and keeps this industry alive, and we all know we have to decarbonise and move uh, as quickly as we can, and that would be the, the best way. And given the huge moving force that these oil and gas companies play in the economy, it's mm. a brave Chancellor who does that. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. And, but this is the problem. You know, there are hard choices, but also I do believe it's not just about cost and, and you know, opportunity cost. I do also think it's about opportunity uh, that can be created, opportunities from, you know, alleviating winter fuel poverty or uh, affordable bus travel for all to be able to breathe clean air and take some of the burden off our NHS. All of these things are opportunities that can come about from decarbonising. Mm. Well, you've got me thinking about your activism. Richard, if you went into politics, what role would you play <laughs> cheerleader <laughs> i think uh well i don't know i've 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 certainly um i've got to take out plastic out of iceland first so that's going to take me uh, five years at least and then we'll see okay watch this space um for somebody listening um i think one of the potential challenges of this whole conversation around plastic is because it has enjoyed such a high profile over the last 12 months when they talk to their colleagues in their larger organisations about this, they may be furious nodding and saying, yes, we're on to this. So what happens if we want to push the conversation to the next step? What would you say to somebody listening? What are the punchier conversations they could be having inside their organisations and what should we be asking ourselves? Mm. Any thoughts and ideas, Cal? Yeah, I think it's a really good point and we need to be very careful that this campaign doesn't lose momentum. We need to keep that momentum going and just because lots of people have done awesome stuff doesn't mean that we can stop doing awesome stuff. Each and every one of us has something that we can do to tackle plastic pollution, whether that's beach cleans or particularly in business, um, reducing the amount of plastic that's used in the organisation. Each and every one of us needs to take responsibility for that. Um, So I would say to the businesses out there, you need to look at your entire supply chain and wherever you can, take single-use plastic out of it. No excuses, just do what you can. And I think also this is a really important foot in the door for a lot of businesses and individuals as well for further environmental campaigns like climate change, like biodiversity loss. The beauty of the plastic pollution crisis is people can touch it and see Mm. it and appreciate what kind of a change they can have. And that empowerment that comes with being able to do something positive can be what leads people, businesses, organisations to want to make further change in other environmental fields as well. No, totally. And Richard, what would you say? Yeah, I'd fully agree with that because, you know, often people will say, well, what can I do? You know, little old me. But of course, everyone individually has a role to play. And, you know, as a business, we have a Costa Coffee concession in our in our head office of about 800 people. Um, and we, we just stopped using the um, the single use uh, takeaway cups and we saved over a quarter of a million annually. Uh, so there are easy, specific things you can do. But as never underestimate as well your power as a consumer. 
um, because ultimately we live or die by our consumers and uh, they are the kings and queens of, of our business. And, and therefore, you know, individual action is so important to drive business change because we have to listen to our consumers. All right. Well, Cal, uh, I'm going to run us through our um, quickfire questions on, um, uh, on every episode uh, we have because I always want to know uh, who people want to meet. We've covered a range of people from seven and eight-year-olds right through to the PM already. Who's top of your list? Top of my list would have to be Dr. Sylvia Earle. Oh. So she is a phenomenal ocean advocate. Have you heard of her, Sylvia Forgive Earle? me, I haven't. You haven't? Oh. So Netflix is an amazing film about her Mission Blue campaign. I think it's called Mission Blue, maybe. Um, absolutely amazing woman. She is a scuba diver and she was one of the first females in the ocean conservancy field. Ah. And she's just an incredible. And what's her nationality? She's um, American. Oh, fantastic. She's a a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I find her so inspiring because she's just, she's unstoppable. (laughs) Well, we're going to link to uh, some information about all of the people and uh, things that you mentioned. Richard, who would you meet? Uh, I'd love to meet Yvonne Schoenart, who's the founder of Patagonia, Mm. uh, which is the ultimate sustainable business and uh, a company and a guy that I really, really admire. And I'd love to hear about, you know, all of the challenges he faced internally and externally with growing a business as a force for good. Yeah, and Cal is nodding uh, oh, furiously and, and approving yeah. of your can choice. Can we have like a, a, a meeting with a both of them? Can yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, thank okay. you. I'll invite you to Sylvia Earle if okay. you invite me to You're Yvonne. On. Excellent. Okay, well, I, I'll come and brush up on my surf lingo. Let everybody down. A book you recommend worthy of a wider audience. It doesn't have to be a business book, Richard. Uh, again, it does feature uh, Yvonne Chunard, but it's called uh, Eco Barons. And uh, it's particularly interesting because it's about people who have uh, had success through business and then either use the business or use the wealth they've created through business uh, to create major environmental projects. Aha. So Barron's has a slightly sinister mm. edge to it, but it's the opposite. This yeah, is people using absolutely. their power for good. Yeah. Love it. Great. Uh, Cal, what's on your bookshelf? I have two. Um, one is called Blue Mind, um, and it basically goes, so I'm a scientist, and this is really incredible. It goes into all the science and the neurology behind why being around water and in water is good for our well-being and why we love it. Um, and that's by Wallace J. Nichols. Great, we will link to it. Yep. And the second one is a book that I've just started called The Nature Fix, which is looking into those links between time and nature and um, and improvement in well-being and cognitive function and all that kind of fun stuff. Excellent. No, thank you. Good recommendations. We'll link to them all. Um, I want to take you both back, maybe even to your student days, uh, a piece of advice to your former self. So, Richard, this is pre your entrepreneurial chapters, pre going into the business. Yeah, I think... uh you know, as ever, when you're young, you can sometimes, uh, you know, take criticism too heavily. And uh, growing a, a thick skin is, is no bad thing, especially if you want to stick your head above the parapet. And it's important to have some self-belief and confidence uh, so that you can go on the course that, that you think is the right one. So who was criticising you then? <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of any sp- uh, specific examples, but I suppose it's, you know, what it's really about is self-confidence. And that does take time to develop and, you know, it takes experience. See, that's fascinating because I think, you know, you came across as humble, but also quite confident, mm. you know. But, Probably but more so now. But... Right, but your take is that did evolve. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. You know, I was never outrageously confident uh, when, when I was young. And I, I think it's, you know, it's important to, uh, to listen and learn to, from others always. You know, that's, mm. that's, how you, that's how you develop. Totally. Cal, what would you say to a younger Cal Major? So one of my favourite phrases, or almost a mantra, is in a world where you can be anything, be kind. 
And that links to another phrase which I love, which is, everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Mm. Be kind always. And I think what I would say to my younger self is be kind always to other people because... Um, and that's not necessarily that I was particularly awful to other people, but oftentimes you meet people whose agendas are different to yours or they act out or they are awful to you or, or whatever. And it can be very easy to blame them and to sort of blame who they are. And actually, they could be fighting anything that you have no idea about. And so always being kind, always seeing the best in people and just letting go. If people are awful to you, just just be kind to them. Just just let go. I love that. A, a mantra we have uh, in the business is, is be creative, you know, often look at things from the other angle uh, be bold of course we've talked about that but the the last one is be kind mm. uh, and I think that's so important no, it's a really important one it does have a place in business mm. 100% so so our final uh, moments together um, we've heard about some of your uh, challenges you've already set yourself but one challenge uh, that looms in your future Richard it might be one you're setting uh, for the business Cal it might be a clue about your next big adventure uh, <laughs> maybe the lens can hear about it first but uh, Cal yeah the lens can hear about it first I've not yet announced it so um, my boyfriend is a filmmaker he made a beautiful film about my expedition last year called vitamin C SEA um, which focuses on plastic, positive things about plastic pollution crisis and all that kind of thing that we've talked about but also very much on that need to connect back to nature and back to the oceans to provide our own to nurture our own well-being and to nurture a desire to protect it as a result so we've made a film about that and I wanted to do a tour of the UK with it um, to have discussions about mental health afterwards because a lot of interesting stuff's coming up in these discussions that I think is really important but I didn't want to drive because I'm concerned about my carbon footprint mm -hmm. so I'm going to cycle it so I'm cycling the length of the UK doing a film tour and then once I get to John O'Groats at the top. I am planning to kite surf to the north of Shetland. Wow. As you do, there you go. <laughs> I can't it's beat almost that. Like, <laughs> Richard, we can't wait for this commitment. I've got to tell you. It's almost as if that very last one might have been made up on the spot. I'm joking. <laughs> she just decided then and there. That I do. is how most of my expeditions right, come about, believe me. No, good. <laughs> After a cup of coffee. I've got to warn you, that isn't Paddle Against Plastic, uh, um, Cal. So have you got a new name for this new inland adventure? <laughs> well, this has been a real conflict for me because I love the ocean. That's why I do ocean adventures. And I fought really hard with the idea of doing an adventure that's by land um, I'm going to start by paddling across from the Sillies to the UK so that counts as paddle <laughs> against plastic but I feel like I need to bring this message inland and to talk to people inland because obviously a lot of the plastic originates inland as well. Of course we will follow you but for now you are paddle against plastic <laughs> online and on Twitter not that you will get Twitter uh, on all of the legs of your journey. Now Richard uh, what's next and we want something bold audacious well, uh, certainly from a business perspective, it's already been set. I mean, you know, the first retailer in the world to pledge to fully eliminate plastic by 2023. And we have an absolute mountain to climb. We're just over a year in and we're roughly a fifth of the way there in terms of the tonnage we've removed. But, you know, it is so difficult and we're still all on our own in terms of the retail environment. No other retailer has joined us. And therefore, we're right at the forefront in terms of trialing and testing and innovating new materials and new ideas. So, you know, that is my big business business uh, challenge over over the next four years for sure and then um, yeah personally uh, I'm speaking to a good friend of mine Kenton Cool, uh, mm, who was at the climber Kenton, yeah yeah amazing climber um, summited Everest 14 times I think but we're hoping to do the old man of Hoy which is a sea stack uh, tower in northern Scotland mm. which is a, a vertical uh, 200 foot um, climb 
Wow, it'll seem minuscule compared to Everest, surely, the Kenton. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hopefully a bit quicker. Um, can I just put it to you, um, Richard? I'm not going to end on a uh, negative, but I think that is such an audacious goal you've set mm. within Iceland. And I think, you know, anyone listening, and you and I know, that there will be a point on the bridge of the ship where you're going to have a conversation with your colleagues, and in this case, this will be with your own family, mm which goes something along the lines that this extraordinary commitment is costing us mm. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And there will be a very tough series of conversations yeah. at which point those two really cannot exist together and some tough decisions have to be made. Anyway, how is that going to play out? And to what extent are you prepared to compromise on the financial success of this amazing company I think it does come from being a private business, which we talked about, taking that long-term view. But of course, you know, we're, we're in business to make money and that's important to the health of the business, our colleagues, our customers. But we walk the tightrope between purpose and profit like anyone else. And, you know, even internally within Iceland, we're not entirely aligned in terms of, uh, you know, the... the um, some of the choices, the hard choices that we have to make. You know, there's some internal tension there. If we've had a good week for sales, anything's possible. And if we've had a bad week, you know, it's hard to face into some of the costs. So I'm under no illusion how difficult this challenge is going to be, but I'm determined to get there. And I think we can. I would much rather set a big, bold, ambitious target and get my 25,000 staff aligned and pointed in that direction and be the drivers of change rather than sit around and wait for someone else to impose it upon us. Phenomenal. Well, um, Richard, thank you so much for sharing those goals. Um, uh, you are an activist, um, but it is absolutely deeds, uh, not words, um, that have inspired um, a lot of different people. So thank you uh, for sharing the story as, as we go along. We will continue to follow this. Uh, so uh, let me say to you, and to Cal Major as well, what a pleasure to meet you. Paddle against plastic, but soon to be on two wheels uh, <laughs> across the United Kingdom and probably beyond uh, knowing you, Cal. It's great to bring you back together. I promised to brush up on my surf <laughs> jargon uh, for next time we meet. So we see can... you in the water. Yeah, we'll see you in the water. Is that like see you on the ice? Is see that you like... back. <laughs> yeah. There you go. See you where? See you out back. Indeed. Not a phrase we've ended the lens on to date, uh, but it's one for today. We'll see you all out back and indeed on our next episode. But for now, Richard Walker, Cal Major, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe to us on iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter with music and editing by Giselle Hall. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>